You just missed a home run. I missed out on an incredible deal you were offering at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. It just started. You can get beautiful Pella windows and pay no interest for four years. Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. It is the end of an era when it comes to packaging. Um, if you want to think about like like sodas, now think about like walking through like the soft drink aisle and all, and there are a number of like cans and bottles of different products that all have distinctive shapes and distinctive colors. You can argue that one of the most distinctive colors, if you think about Sprite, you know, Sprite is of course the Coca Cola version of kind of Seven Up or things like that, kind of like the lemon lime sort of thing. Sprite has been around for decades and decades and decades. And one of the classic things that goes with Sprite is it has always been sold in in a green plastic bottle. You know, the cans are green, and Sprite has always been sold in a green plastic bottle. That is all going to come to an end next Monday. Because Coca-Cola has announced that they are changing the packaging for Sprite. And from now on in, Sprite will be made in clear plastic bottles, similar to the clear plastic bottles, I guess, that Coca-Cola is made in. Now, why are they doing this? The labels are still going to be the same. They're still going to have that green. But those green bottles are gone. Well, it's because they have determined, I guess, I don't know what took them so long to do this, but they have determined that the colored plastic contains something called PET, P-E-T, green polyethylene terephthalate, which is an additive that makes it green. But by making it green, that additive means that they can't be recycled into new bottles for whatever reason it is. So it's occurred to Coca-Cola that, well, this isn't necessarily very planet-friendly, and if we want to recycle these plastics and stuff, maybe we should change the marketing. So they're going to do that exactly. I bring this up just because if you happen to be a Sprite drinker, and I'm, I, I like Diet Sprite. I, you know, I think Diet Sprite's a good change of pace from time to time. Um, if you're going into the grocery store, and I don't know when the new bottles are going to hit the store shelves, but those green plastic bottles that everybody's become used to over the last 50 or 60 years, they're, they're going to be collector's items in a very, very short time because starting August 1st, the green Sprite bottles go the way, well, of, of so many different things that have just kind of disappeared, a couple of which we're going to be talking about a little bit later on. All right, let's get started. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I sent out a tweet about this, and, and we have discussed this in the past. It is now becoming a reality. Brittany Griner, who is a professional women's basketball player, and everybody probably knows the story by now, in order to make extra money, she and a number of her colleagues in the WNBA, what they do is in the off-season, they travel to Europe and they play for various European teams. They can actually make more money playing for European teams in those seasons than they can um, playing for American teams. Brittany Griner plays for a team in Russia. So last what was it early february not not during the russia's invasion of ukraine but about 10 days before russia was going to invade ukraine and if you will remember back to that time that they were massing 
military forces on the Ukraine border. There was all sorts of conversation about could diplomacy stop this, etc., etc. It was a very, very tense time, even though the invasion hadn't actually started. For reasons that probably pass understanding, Brittany Griner decided that she was going to return to her team in Russia right before the start of this war. Okay, that's the decision that she ends up making. So she flies to Russia, an airport a little bit outside of Moscow. Her story has varied from time to time, but there's no question that in her luggage, she's bringing a a couple vials of hash oil, hashish oil, which is... Uh, depending on, on the story you listen to, it was either prescribed or, or whatever, but it's a very, very small quantity of it. I mean, it's it's clearly personal use sort of quantities of this. Her story was she packed in a hurry and forgot it was there, and then she brings it in. All right, Russia has very, very strict laws against smuggling drugs. At the same time, this this is not Midnight Express. She She's not smuggling, you know, pounds and pounds and kilos and kilos of heroin. She's got what is clearly some personal use hashish oil that she is bringing into the country. And like I say, her story was that she forgot it in a hurry to pack. Anyhow, she gets busted at the airport. She gets arrested, and she has been detained in a Russian jail for this very, very small quantity of hashish oil since February. And she ended up pleading guilty, and she's scheduled to have a sentencing hearing and ultimately be sentenced sometime next week. She's looking at up to 10 years in prison. She, there is no question in my mind, let's just lay this out there, she is being held as a political prisoner. And I think it's almost impossible to argue with that. The typical way that you would handle something like this would be, in, in a saner sense of time, you would, I don't know, fine her. You would then deport her back to this country. Like I say, she's not a major narcotics smuggler. What she did was careless, it was reckless, it was stupid on many, many levels, but but she's not a big-time drug mule trying to bring all sorts of you know quantities of illegal drugs into the Soviet Union. But these are different times. These are not normal times. The Soviet Union has become an international pariah, and she is a high-profile American, which has run afoul of uh, Moscow's laws. So there's all this pressure that's being brought in, in some of the sources that are close to the Biden administration. You've got to free Britney. You've got to get Britney out. And that's a sentiment that I, I understand. I mean, it seems to me she is being treated overly harshly for what it is that she has done. So the story circulating now is that Joe Biden, the Biden administration, has offered to cut a deal with Russia in exchange for the release of her and a security consultant, a guy named Paul Wieland, who's been imprisoned in Russia for the last couple years. He was charged with and convicted of espionage. So there's that's a more complicated case, but his family believes that, once again, he's being set up as a political prisoner as well. So the Biden administration is trying to figure out a way, okay, how can we get the, these people out? Russia apparently is demanding, and the Biden administration is willing to agree to releasing, at least they have offered to release, a guy who has been, his name is Victor Bout. He's 55 years old. He has been nicknamed the Merchant of Death. Yes, he's been nicknamed the Merchant of Death. 
Where does that come from? Well, he was, um, this is a guy who's an international arms dealer who, for example, in 2011 was convicted of conspiracy to kill Americans, conspiracy to deliver anti-aircraft missiles, and aiding a terrorist organization. They caught him in 2008 in a sting operation in Bangkok where he met with DEA informants who were posing as officials with something called the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, which has been classified by U.S. officials as a narco-terrorist group. He was prepared to provide the group with $20 million worth of what they describe as a breathtaking arsenal of weapons, hundreds of surface-to-air missiles, machine guns, and sniper rifles, 10 million rounds of ammunition, and 5 tons of plastic explosive. He is extremely tight with the Russia regime, and Russian officials see him as what they call a high-value asset. Um, Moscow, the, the word is, wants him back because he possesses critical insights that he can share with his former agency, GRU, which is like the Russian equivalent of the CIA. Having been in a U.S. prison and been interrogated by U.S. officials, he knows what our intelligence requirements are and other information that is valuable to the Russians. And apparently the Biden administration is offering to trade the merchant of death for Brittany Griner and this other American that's been held in, in custody. And it's very, very clear that Russia is using these people who, particularly in the case of Brittany Griner, were caught with what would, again, be a minor sort of offense that under normal circumstances would have resulted in her being fined and deported. But they're trying to get the U.S. to release this major terrorist. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My message, and it's what I said in the tweet when I sent it out, was that appeasement, in this case, that's what it is, trying to appease an evil regime, the Putin regime, appeasement never works. And my concern is, by trading a high-value asset to the Russians in order to get this basketball player back, it makes every American traveling overseas a potential hostage. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The Biden administration is apparently hot for this deal. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And look, I want to be very clear here. I, I know that, you know, Brittany Griner is very, very left-wing, and she's been engaged in, um, I don't she would refuse to come out and participate in the national anthem and things like that. At least my position on this has nothing to do with this. I, I just don't think you can deal with terrorists. And I felt that way the whole line. And, and this, the Russia government is behaving as a terrorist in this particular situation. You've taken somebody that admittedly committed an offense, but it is a minor offense. And like I say, the typical response would be you find her, you deport her. Well, now they're talking about putting her in prison for 10 years. They are holding her hostage in order to try to get somebody released that should not be released. And to equate a, a basketball player who brought a little bit of hash oil into the country, either intentionally or inadvertently, doesn't matter, with the merchant of death, somebody who was convicted in a court of law of attempting to sell $20 million worth of weapons to what was a terrorist group that would be used to shoot American planes out of the sky. 
sky is ridiculous. But yet Joe Biden is considering doing that because he, he needs a PR win. Well, I'm not sure this is going to give him that. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to John in Milwaukee. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. What do you um, think? First of all, I totally agree with you. She is absolutely being held as a political asset for the Russians in order to do exactly what you just said, to get that trade for this warlord of death or whatever you would call them. But I guess my pivot point would be, you know, she did mess up. I mean, clearly she had drugs in her bag in Russia. I wouldn't carry shampoo in my bag in Russia. I'd be so scared of breaking a law. And my guess is you wouldn't have gone back to Russia, you know, a week before they're massing to invade in the Ukraine. My guess is maybe you would have said, you know, maybe this isn't the time to go rejoin my team. And maybe I'll just I'll, I'll give up a couple months of salary. That would be my guess. Well, sure. And then the other point that I have is, I mean, obviously, she's a, a human being. She deserves every right that everyone else does. But the, the fact that it's such a big deal, free Brittany Griner, she messed up in a foreign country. And I guess my question would be, in our own justice system here in the country, how many people are being held within our own justice system with hashish oil charges? So now she's so special because I guess she can put a ball through a hoop, and she's Mm -hmm. tall, I guess. But I think it's just as kind of political on our side as well. I mean, clearly not as bad as, I mean, Russia's clearly Mm -hmm. a broker deal here, but there's so much value on her. I mean, how many people in our own system are currently in that same predicament? Yeah, and thanks for calling, John. I don't know the answer. Again, this is the quantity that she was caught with. Like I keep saying, this is not, and if people don't understand my Midnight Express movie, there was a movie years and years ago about a guy who ended up getting caught in a Turkish, spending a lot of time in a very nasty Turkish prison because of involved with, with smuggling opium and stuff like that. The amount of, of hashish oil she had was less than, take a nickel out of your pocket, in weight it was less than a nickel. She is not a drug trafficker. She, there's no question ab- about this. So so this isn't on a par. This isn't like the U.S. is saying, hey, we want to get a drug trafficker back and we're willing for whatever reason. And, and we're willing to exchange somebody who is essentially a terrorist who would have easily sold the weapons that would have killed thousands or tens of thousands of Americans if given the, the chance and who is a high value asset to the Russians because of, of all the intelligence that he's gathered over the years. I, I'm just saying you cannot deal. You, you can't deal with terrorists. And that's always been the, the philosophy that I, I thought we've had. That's how it, certainly Israel treats this. And I understand that that's tough. I understand that it's difficult for Joe Biden to get a spine and to say to people, we, you know, we can't give up arms dealers, for example, who've been convicted in courts of law for this situation. You, you've got to work through diplomatic channels. But if you don't do, if you make this deal, Every American traveling abroad is now at risk, certainly anybody traveling in, in Soviet-based countries, because if you get grabbed, you get kidnapped, you get held on BS charges or whatever, you might find yourself being the next pawn that they're going to use to say, okay, this is the merchant of death. Who, who's the next spy? Who's the next arms dealer that we want out? Jeff, I'm sorry, here's a text, but you cannot trade anyone with a history of having an arsenal to, arsenal to start a minor war for someone with a minimal amount of drugs. This would set the arena for detaining any American with
with a potentially illegal substance, regardless of amount, for future trade-offs with much more dangerous and comparative thugs. I feel for Brittany, this is not a trade that we should agree to. And, and I agree with that as well. I think it is appalling that this woman is being held. And that that's coming from the perspective of somebody who clearly acknowledges that what she did was just dumb in the extreme. But I don't think you can make this deal. You put everybody else at risk and you give in appeasement doesn't work and that is precisely what joe biden is trying to do he is trying to appease a rogue international government let's talk to um jason jason you're on wtmj good afternoon hey afternoon jeff i agree with everything that you said already but i'm going to come at it from a little bit of a different angle so has this administration no shame even that they even thought about this or even, you know, asked like somebody whispering in somebody's ear, hey, let's do this for this. I'm sorry, you're going to release a terrorist who could kill thousands of people in one second for a WNBA star? I mean, yeah, I feel sorry for her that she's being captive and all like that. But, you know, going back to your point, it's... uh, terrorist for a basketball player right really? it is it's not just the guy it's not just the terrorist aspect of it but all the, the reason russia wants him is they view him as an intelligence asset he apparently used to work for the their the, the what what is it the kgu the, their equivalent of the cea cia so they they view him as an intelligence aspect they want to get him back because they want to debrief him what were the questions the americans asked you what was this process etc so it, it's not just that and look i I'm not saying this Brittany Griner is a bad lady. I, I just, I, and it's, it's not her politics. It's nothing like that. If this were Captain America that had gotten caught under similar circumstances, I would still argue you do not trade with, you do not trade when you're put under the gun. You do not give in to terrorists. And that's essentially what this is. Now, I understand it's the Russian government and you've got the Russian judicial system, but l- let's face it, the, the punishment she's being subjected to is so completely out of line and to offer uh, again, there's no question in my mind they're doing this because they, they want to use her as leverage. My concern is if you give in to this, Joe Biden, what are you going to have to give in to next? The various partisan primaries are coming up a week from Tuesday, and early voting has already begun. We discussed this story briefly yesterday in a, in a shortened show. I think to the surprise of many, Alex Lasry, who started running for Senate in February of 2021, has essentially spent the last year and, his, uh, and a half of his life running for the Democratic nomination for Senate. He spent over $12 million of his essentially his father's money, in trying to get elected. And he announced yesterday afternoon that he was dropping out of the race and was going to support Mandela Barnes, the current lieutenant governor. This comes on the heels of the decision made a couple days ago by Tom Nelson, who is the very, very liberal um, county executive from, what, Outagamie County, that he was dropping out of the race as well. And while one candidate still remains to challenge Barnes, State Treasurer Sarah Gadluski, the, rea- the reality is that this race is now all over but the shouting. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I just sent out a link. Journal Sentinel has what I think is an 
accurate and fair piece describing by Dan Bice and Bill Glauber describing how how it just broke so dramatically for Mandela Barnes in the, the course of the last couple of weeks. And, and what they say is, I think, consistent with what I've been hearing, the fact that um, the, the, there was a Marquette poll taken a number of weeks ago, which um, showed the race relatively close. I think Barnes had 21 and, um, and uh, Lazary had, had 21% and Barnes had 25%. So it's relatively close. But th- that's an old poll. And all the internal polling that the campaigns had done and some external polling shows that over the course of the last couple weeks since that Marquette poll was taken, um, Lazary's support ha- had not increased and, and Barnes has had dramatically. And so the people sat down and they said to Alex Lazary, look, you're, you, you cannot win. This is effectively it. The only way you might be able to win is if you went brutally negative on Mandela Barnes. And even then we can't guarantee that you're, you're going to do it. And Lazary, I think, seeing the handwriting on the wall, decided that he didn't want to go negative, especially given the fact that there wasn't any sort of guarantee that it was going to work. And so after spending $12 million and a year and a half of his life, he ended up dropping out of the race. The interesting thing to me is not so much that he's out of the race, because if you're a regular listener to this program, my position was he was never going to win. This was always sort of, a, I don't want to say fool's errand, but it was always, it was never going to succeed. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, first of all, um, Alex Lazary, in, in Democratic politics that are very, very much, um, I don't know, like ID driven. Um, Alex Lazary is, is a white male, doesn't check any of the boxes. That That's just the reality. Secondly, he was correctly and appropriately viewed as sort of a trust fund baby. Now, there are other very, very wealthy people who have succeeded in Wisconsin politics, but in almost all those instances, take Herb Cole, take Ron Johnson, they're, they're people who had had gotten into politics late in life after running successful businesses and things of, of the like. A- Alex Lazary's claim to fame is he was born into a family that had enormous wealth. So it's not like he had accomplished things on his own. In addition, Lazary, I think, could never get past the perception that he was, in fact, a, a carpetbagger, somebody who kind of flew in from New York on Daddy's private plane seven, eight years ago and went to work for the company that Daddy bought. In this case, it's the Milwaukee Bucks, but never had accomplished anything of his own. And the truth is, here in Wisconsin, and I have said this repeatedly in so many different contexts, we are we are parochial, and I don't mean that in a bad way. But typically, you do not have outsiders that come in and become quickly adopted and succeed in politics or or whatever. Most of us, or at least many of us, this is not a state of transplants. I understand there are some people who come in, but many, many, many of us have lived here most, if not all, of our lives. And I think it's hard for an outsider to break through. And if you look at the politicians that have been especially successful, um, you, you see one of the common characteristics is they're born and bred or at least raised for a substantial amount of time in Wisconsin with significant ties to Wisconsin. So you've got a, a young wealthy carpetbagger who who swoops in it it just to me it was always going to be about a 20 percent solution which maybe 
if you had a four, five, six-way primary that was really, really close, maybe maybe you could pull that out. But that's not how this all materialized. So, I mean, I think the Lazarus situation, it was flat out, it was never going to go anywhere. And I, I do think it is kind of interesting that you make that decision after spending all this time to not even let, you know, the voters make that decision and vote for you. But I think maybe it's better to do that than run second or maybe run third. Um, as far as Sarah Godlewski, why her campaign never took off, I think that the article in the paper makes a lot of sense. She inexplicably um, just just didn't. She invested about four million dollars of her own money in this, this race, and then she went dark. Just by going dark, I mean there were no TV ads, there were no nothing. So while you had Lazary and just as Mandela Barnes was starting to advertise and build his name recognition, she was doing nothing as far as advertising or anything like that, and that's. She got left in the lurch as well. Now, I don't know if it was just the decision she made that, hey, we put $4 million into the campaign. We're not going to spend any more money. I, I understand that. And I, she's very, very wealthy through her, I think, her husband. But nevertheless, I think they made the decision that maybe, hey, you know, it's, you know, after after you spend $4 million or so, well, you know, maybe we've got to think about whether we spend another 4 or $5 million. So they went dark at the same time that Mandela Barnes started advertising and started having people coalesce around him. It will be interesting, though, because in the general election, uh, Mandela Barnes is not going to get a pass. And as I've said before, he's... I, he, he might be popular in some circles, but he, and give him credit, he's won statewide office. He won when he was running as lieutenant governor four years ago, but he is a very, very, I would describe flawed candidate, and he's very, very out there on a number of issues. And I don't know that there's going to be a race in this country where if you look at where they are on the issues, and I'm talking about on the issues, where you have a starker contrast between Mandela Barnes and, and Ron Johnson. Mandela Barnes is way, 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 way to the left of Joe Biden on issues like criminal justice and the Green New Deal and all sorts of stuff like that. And, of course, you know, Ron Johnson's well-known for his conservative positions and, again, some of the rabbit holes that he's gone down, which has made him controversial as well. But there's there's no there's no middle ground between these. I, I've listened to some of the, you know, the Republican candidates for governor talk, and the truth of the matter is there's not too much of a difference in policy matters, in my opinion, between Rebecca Clayfish and Tim Michaels. There are huge policy differences between Mandela Barnes and between Ron Johnson. And that's what's going to be fleshed out during the course of the campaign. But as we discussed briefly yesterday, Alex Lazary is out. $12.3 million kind of flushed down the media rabbit hole. And now the, the race, while it's not official, it won't be official till a week from Tuesday, does look like it's going to be Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. And all I can say is hold on to your hat. Speaking of hold on to your hats... Let me tell you about another situation where you can make an argument that there's a couple court officials who have blood on their hands. Stick around. Okay, I want to tell you the story of a guy named Wilson Medina Cruz, 25-year-old Milwaukee man who has been charged in the shooting death of a woman named Nanashka Mastre Lozada of West Allis, who I believe was the um, 
I think she was the, the mother of three of his children. All right, here's the way Fox News, Fox 6, describes what, what happened. Um, 72nd and Greenfield homicide. Milwaukee man charged cash bond $500,000. Now, hear me out on this. But this is it. A 25-year-old Milwaukee man is charged with first-degree intentional homicide in connection with a fatal shooting that happened near 72nd and Greenfield in West Allis. The accused is Wilson Medina Cruz. According to the criminal complaint, West Dallas police officers responded to a residence near 76th and 72nd and Greenfield on Monday, July 18th for a report of screaming and gunshots. When they arrived on the scene, the officers found a 24-year-old woman lying on the ground. She suffered a gunshot wound. The West Dallas Fire Department was called to the scene, and despite life-saving measures, the victim died a short time later. Investigation spoke, investigators spoke with a couple of workers who were in the area at the time. After they heard the gunshots, they saw a man running from an alley. The workers took several photographs of the subject as he went north, where he was picked up by a gold or tan Cadillac near 71st and Madison. These photos were shared with investigators. Officials also recovered security video from a nearby business. It showed the Cadillac, and investigators were able to identify the license plates on the vehicle. A detective made contact with a woman near the scene of the shooting. The person identified the person in the photographs, that would be the person running from the murder scene, um, as Manuel Medina. The woman noted Medina was the boyfriend of the deceased for approximately two to three years, and they had three children in common. All right. Uh, the complaint says the defendant was arrested by West Dallas police the next day on July 19th at the Embassy Hotel in Oak Creek. The complaint says he was wearing ripped blue jeans and a black baseball hat, similar to those observed during the homicide. While in custody, he spoke with investigators through an interpreter. He initially denied any involvement in the homicide and denied carrying a firearm. When confronted with evidence placing him at the scene of the murder, he said someone came up and shot the victim and also shot him. A detective indicated that there was no evidence of anyone else on the scene. The defendant then admitted to shooting the victim with a white and black 9mm firearm. He said the shooting happened when the victim came outside and was swinging at him. The defendant said he shot her and wasn't looking. He just he said he just shot like crazy. Medina Cruz also told investigators he got rid of the gun somewhere in Burlington, Wisconsin, and admitted that he had purchased a plane ticket to Puerto Rico and was planning to fly there, which was would perhaps explain why he was hanging out at the hotel, kind of in the area where the airport was. Okay, so you might say to me, all right, Jeff, why are we talking about this story? Because th- this happens, you know, in a in a city that is on pace to have what, 240 homicides this year? You know, why are we talking about one? Well, because just like so many of the homicides, he should not have been out on the street in the first place. And this is the challenge. And, I, and I, you know, after that Waukesha Christmas Parade story where you had Daryl Brooks and everybody was shocked and appalled that the guy who was responsible for killing all those people in the Waukesha Christmas Parade was out on bail. And the, the ex- explanation was, oh, this is an aberration. Well, <laughs> my point was, it's not an aberration. This happens all the time. And my advice to anybody in the news media around here is whenever you are writing a story about somebody who's been accused of murder, unless you are trying to cover up the fact that the Milwaukee County and the Waukesha County juvenile justice systems, that is, are a complete and total joke, you might want to take an extra five minutes and just go to Wisconsin Circuit Court Access where you can run 
rap sheets of people. And if you would have done that with regard to 25-year-old Wilson Medina Cruz, who is believed to have been now responsible for murdering his girlfriend and the mother of his three children, you would have found out that on March 11th of 2021, you know, a year and four months before the murder, he was charged in Waukesha with car theft, which was a felony. He was released on a signature bond um, on March 28th. Uh, he was First of all, he was released on a $500 signature bond. And a signature bond means you don't have to post any of your own money. You just have to promise that you're going to, to show up. So he's, he's charged with car theft. He's released on a $500 signature bond. He fails to show up in September, fails to show up for his court appearance. His attorney, and I was looking at the court records, indicates that he can't locate his client and doesn't know where he is. Okay, so he's then, he's, he's now failed to appear. He's charged with bail jumping because he has failed to appear, he is able to avoid, um, he's able to uh, avoid being apprehended. He's arrested March 25th of 2022 this year. Now, here's a guy who has jumped bail. They bring him back in. He's jumped a $500 signature bond. What would you think you would do with somebody who's wanted on a felony, has jumped bond? Well, maybe... Maybe you, you give him a significant bail, you know, because he's already demonstrated he's not going to appear. They released him on a $1,000 signature bond. So he, he jumps bail. He gets caught after he's a fugitive for, you know, almost a year. They bring him back in, and they turn him loose again in Waukesha on a $1,000 signature bond. Now, in the interim, he was also charged in before all this happened in february of 2021 he was also charged with domestic abuse in in milwaukee um which is a misdemeanor not a felony the car theft thing was a felony he was released on a signature bond there and has never showed up he's failed to appear so the guy jumped bail on his misdemeanor charge in milwaukee he jumped bail on his car theft felony charge in waukesha he gets caught in waukesha they turn around they let him out on another signature bond and then three months later he murders the the mother of his three child children at least allegedly he shouldn't have been on the street and again this is the point i tried to make with daryl brooks this stuff happens all the time this is a regular situation where the, the cops catch people and they are turned loose on ridiculously low bails. I'm not going to quibble with the $500 signature bond, I guess, on the felony car theft. That strikes me as stupid low. But once he jumps bail and they bring him back in to turn him loose on a $1,000 signature bond is the height of insanity. And th- this is the Waukesha County Court System that did it here, which demonstrates you've got some court commissioners in Waukesha that don't have the sense that God gave a goose, just like you've got court commissioners and judges in Milwaukee County who don't have the sense that God gave a goose. But yet another story, and it seems like we have these stories once a week, where somebody who should have been behind bars 
is not. They're let loose on ridiculously low bails, and as a result of that, somebody is dead. There's blood on the hands, certainly of the murderer, but also blood on the hands of the people in the court system who decide to turn these dangerous people loose and let them prey on the rest of us. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Okay, I acknowledge this makes my head explode. You can, you, you can argue what facts mean and interpretations to draw from facts, but at the same time, facts are, are facts, and, and you, you can't change those facts. And yet it has been fascinating to me to watch, well, what President Biden, some people in his administration, and some of the enablers in the media have been doing with regard to the economic data that is out there. Now, the, here is the, the reality. In some respects, economics, like the law, is an art as opposed to a, a science. And you have different economic economists, for example, that have different economic theories. And, you know, why is it good to raise rates? Is it bad to raise interest rates? You know, what what happens? Is inflation good? Is it bad? How, how much inflation is intolerable? What's the different things? But there's at least while you disagree with, okay, what, what is the meaning and what is the significance of this? You, you, you can't disagree with the basic facts. A recession it's this is not up to question a, a recession if you if you go to college and you're taking an economics class and they ask you you know on the test you get this essay test and they say what is a recession and the, the definition the textbook definition of what a recession is it's a period in which real gross domestic product real gdp declines for at least two consecutive quarters that's the textbook definition of it. it. It's not a perfect definition because some recessions have, have bigger problems than that. Some have letter problems, but it, it's the definition, and it describes almost every economic downturn since World War II, two consecutive quarters with um a, a decrease in real gross domestic product. Okay, so that that's it. And it, you know, so what's happened? The numbers came out today, and they have showed that you know we have now we are technically in a a recession. Gross domestic product has declined for two consecutive quarters. Now you can argue that, okay, this recession's not going to be as bad as other recessions, or you can argue that, well, you know, employment numbers are high, so that means that, okay, maybe we'll, we'll come out of it quicker or whatever. But you can't argue that we are we are in a recession the way that term is defined. Now, again, you can argue about there's all sorts of other indicators that indicate that, you know, maybe we're, we're going to get out of this sooner or maybe, you know, if the Federal Reserve keeps raising interest rates, they'll be able to tame inflation. You can explain that there's all sorts of reasons. But the truth is we are objectively speaking, we are in a recession, period, because you have had a decrease in real gross domestic product for the last two quarters. All right. The, the Biden administration moving into midterms with polling approval ratings in the 30s, 
the last thing they want to do is acknowledge that the economy is in a recession, despite the fact that the numbers don't lie. So you, you have all these people that are dancing around hoops, all these uh, economists who you know are, are in bed with the Biden administration and Joe Biden himself who are arguing we're not going to be in a recession. And the president's aides have spent much of the last several days, because they knew where these numbers were going, saying, well, um, you know, th- this this really isn't a it's not a, a it's not a recession. You know, we've got all this other stuff that, that's going on. Well, we're in a recession, period. You can't have your own facts. You can argue that, hey, we're going to come out of this quick or even though we're in a recession, there's all these other things to be positive about. But the reality is we're in a recession. And I guess it's just frustrating. These are the type of things that make my head want to explode where I- instead of. At least all the journalists saying, well, wait a second, for the last 60 years, this is the definition that we have used, the shorthand definition to determine a recession. So, Mr. Biden, given the fact that this is the definition that we have used for the last 60 years, would you explain to me why suddenly when you are the president, this now we we, we should not. We should not use this, and instead we should use other indicators. Now, again, if you want to change the definition of what a recession is, okay, rewrite some of the textbooks, you know, re-educate people, and I acknowledge that if you look at it, it's a complicated sort of thing. Many of the things are complicated, but the truth of the matter is, based on the numbers that have come out today, we are in a recession. We can argue about what it means. We can argue about how bad it is. We can argue about whether it's Joe Biden's fault or not. We can have those discussions, but we're in a recession, and that's the headline. And to allow the president to spin it as something other than it really is, is just, I guess, incredibly frustrating, and it makes you want your head to explode, because this is how we've defined recessions. This is the elements of it. We've had negative growth for the last two quarters. That's what a recession is, as is generally understood, period, case closed. All right, when we come back, well, it's a way that you might be able to get out of your own personal recession if you're going to take it. By the way, don't get me wrong. I I, I never want to root against this country. I I just I, I hope we're not in a recession. But the truth of the matter is the way the government has always defined a recession is two consecutive quarters of, of negative GDP. That, that That's it. And I, I agree that that's a simplistic sort of thing, but that's the way that we've always defined it, except now that it's Joe Biden and the midterms are coming up and he's got an approval rating in the 30s. It's like, well, the, the standard definition of it, well, we, we want you to ignore this because we, we've got, you know, we've got low unemployment and that's not necessarily characteristic of a recession. Well, again, if you go back to that, that may be a factor. And that's why you might want to argue that this recession is not going to be as bad as other recessions. You might want to say, well, part of this is because there's a chip shortage or supply chain shortages. And those are all valid arguments that maybe this recession will be different than other recessions. And candidly, I mean, I want to see economic growth. That That's what this country is all about. But you can't you can't change definitions, just like you have some Democrats that struggle with the definition of what a woman is. One of our texters make that point. Now we want to change the definition of what a recession is. All right. Friday night, the Mega Millions jackpot tops $1 billion for the third time ever. Um, it's 
the, the jackpot has now gone up to $1.025 billion and, and rising. If you win it, the cash option, if you want to take it in cash, would be like $600 million. The odds of winning the jackpot are around in, are around 1 in 302 million. But this is the point in time where lots of people, including people who might never play the lottery before, are thinking about it. In the, over here in our, our content section here at WTMJ, there, there's already, there's like office pools that are generating, like the Wisconsin's Afternoon News team. They're putting together their, their pool if people, you know, want to contribute money, but you have to be a member of Wisconsin's Afternoon News team. Um, Vinny Vitrano from our morning news team, he was putting together his, his own sort of office pool and, I was asked if I want to participate, and my general response was, well, if I wanted to contribute 20 bucks, candidly, I, I think I might have more enjoyment just going to you know, a, a store, buying a good six-pack of beer, and lighting $20 on fire than I would be investing in this where the chances of winning are one in 300, and 302 million to win. But I know because of of the large amount of money, there's probably going to be an enormous number of lottery tickets that are sold. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accunate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, just one segment, but but here is my question. It's a legitimate one. Are you going to be playing the Mega Millions Lottery for Friday now that the jackpot is over $1 billion? And if you are a regular lottery player, are you going to be... I'll use the term investing in air quotes. Are you going to be investing more money in this week's lottery than you would in the past? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you getting in? And, and if so, I guess my question is why? Did I mention the chances of winning are 1 in 302 million? 855-616-1620. Are you getting in? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. All right. So the Mega Millions jackpot one billion dollars. Tickets cost two dollars. Although I think what for an extra buck you can also get some sort of multiplier. But um, you, you would walk away if you are the one winner. You would walk away with the option to take like over six hundred million dollars and counting in cash. You're going to play. And and if so, why, Jeff? It takes one ticket to win three dollars to be set for life. It is totally. Totally worth it. Jeff, I use my per diem money I get from work to pay for my tickets. It's free money, and hopefully I'll win something sometime. Let's see. Jeff, I did buy a ticket, but I would prefer the smaller $1 million prize. I don't want my life to change that dramatically. Um, Mike in Marquette, Michigan says, I'm with you, Jeff. I'd rather buy a six-pack of good beer. After all, the lotto is a tax on people who suck at math. Well, it is. It's that that daydream, and I guess the 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 appeal of of the lottery. You you go into it knowing that you're not going to win. At least I hope you do. Going into it knowing you're not going to win. But I guess what it is is you're paying for that that dream that that's out there. The idea that okay maybe. Just maybe I, I buy the ticket on a let's say Thursday. I buy the ticket on my way home on Thursday afternoon, and then I, I have at least until whenever they do the drawing on Friday night. And for that time, you can dream and think, "Hey, I'm just I, I'm going to be all set, and generations of my family are going to be set." You can dream, so you're really saying, "Okay, buying that ticket for two bucks or whatever, or ten dollars if you're going to buy five or whatever that is." It you're you're paying for 
that dream. <laughs> and and maybe that's maybe that's worth it. 855-616-1620. Jason, Jason, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, afternoon, Jeff. Usually I'm not a donator towards the lottery and stuff like that, but when it gets up this high, it's a, yeah, I got an extra 20 bucks in my pocket. Yeah, I'm going to buy a ticket because somebody's got to win somewhere. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, Jason. Throw my hat in the ring. Well, okay. Let, let me, let me ask you. You started off by saying when it gets up this high. Okay, and yes, I understand a billion dollars is just a mind-boggling amount of money. But okay, let's let's say let's say it was four hundred million dollars. Okay, wouldn't that be life-changing for you too? I mean, really, what's the difference between? Well, I mean, what, so I, I understand the math, but if you win four hundred million, that's life-changing, isn't it? Well, yeah, it would. But still, I'm not going to donate on four hundred million. I my cutoff is seven fifty. Okay, so, I mean, okay, okay. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. I just no, I just, and I don't mean to make fun of you, but it just, it's always kind of funny. Well, I, you know, I, I don't play the lottery because I know I've got, you know, it's one in three hundred two million the, the chances of winning this. But I, I, when it gets really big, when it gets to be life changing, okay. I mean, again, you know, I, I, I take my hat off to you if, if winning. If if winning ten million dollars wouldn't be life changing, or winning a hundred million wouldn't be life changing, I mean, I guess that's what I've always thought is kind of funny about this. It's sort of that group mentality. Well, a billion dollars is life changing. Well, yeah, it would be, but I don't know for for I, you 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 know a couple. Let me win a couple hundred thousand dollars, and I don't know that it'll be life changing, but it would certainly you know help make my life a little bit easier for the next year or two. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. You going to play? You going to participate? James on the South Side. James, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. I'm gonna I'm gonna participate. I think that uh, I'll, I'll I'll do my ten dollars in that. But you know, just like you always say, Jeff, uh, if um, if you spend a lot of money you know like some of these people are going to do you got too much money you got yeah. too much money in uh in your bank account or too much money uh, or time or all this other stuff on your hands yep. i guess i guess then you look at it and say geez uh, i could do it uh just like you said some other which way maybe a dinner or maybe maybe a cigar or maybe some food or maybe maybe do something else that might even fill your tank um well, on your vehicle or something like that you know james that's that's kind of interesting i again i I hope the people, and I, I never lecture people about how to spend money and stuff like that, unless it's taxpayer dollars. But I, I guess I do hope that the, the people that, that see these big numbers, if you want to, if you want to play for what I was talking about earlier, if you want to play for that dream, that, that the idea that my gosh, you know, I, I I could have that that winning ticket. Oh, okay, you know, you, you invest, you know, two bucks or four bucks or ten bucks or whatever for this. I guess, I mean, the lotteries have always, in my opinion, appropriately been described as taxes on the poor because, again, it's very, very regressive. I think what you tend to see is that people who uh, tend to be a little bit less affluent tend to participate in this more because they think that they've got the, the dream that's out there. And the truth is, again, the odds are one in 302 million. That That's just, that is a staggering sort of thing. I do hope that you know people that see oh it's a billion dollars and if you're a regular lottery player and you you typically you you buy a ticket or you buy ten dollars worth of tickets or whatever i i do hope that there's people out there who aren't saying okay well now it's this big bunch of money so what i'm going to do is i'm going to take a hundred dollars that i i don't really have and i'm going to because now I, i really want my chance to to win and i am afraid that that's what what happens? And again, I, I don't tell people how to spend their money. I don't think there should be a limit on it. But I am afraid that, given the fact that the truth is, 
I understand somebody somewhere has to win. I, I get that at some point in time. But unless you're that one in 302 million, it ain't going to be you that wins. So if you're, you know, taking, you know, the gas money and the weekly shopping budget because you think you want to get in on this one, all I would say is think twice about it, please, because it's one in 302 million. Mike Spaulding, you buying a ticket? No, I'm not. You're not? No, I'm, I'm going to save the money. I'm going to buy a Choco Taco instead. And- we might talk about that before they're gone. You know, <laughs> yeah, before, exactly. I mean, it's changing. The Sprite is changing. There's not going to be green bottles starting Monday. They're not going to make green bottles. Choco Taco is gone. And I, I do. We had one of the callers. I don't. I, I, I get it, but they, they're, they're like, well, okay, it's life changing. So now I don't normally buy tickets, but now I'm going to do. I'm going to buy tickets because it's a billion dollars. And I'd be like, okay, like winning a hundred million dollars wouldn't be life changing. Yeah, no, the, the three hundred eighty million, no, but the billion, <laughs> yeah, I'll go for it. No, and I, I know why people do. Someone has to win, right? Someone's going to right. win eventually. Could be you. I just, I, I don't. Well, and I, again, I, I think it's that dream. There is mm-hmm. the, the, that's the best way I can explain. And if people go into it with the idea that it's fun, that you buy the ticket today, you get to think for the next 27 hours, hey, I could have that mm-hmm. winning ticket. If you go in thinking that you are going to be that one out of 302 million and, and you're spending more than you possibly, that you, you should, you want to say, man, you want to really kind of think about that. Will I buy a ticket or not? It, it For me, it depends on do I, if I if I stop somewhere in the next day or so where the tickets are there. Will I go out of my way to buy tickets? No. If I stop somewhere where they're there, just, just for fun, I might, so I can get the radio story on Monday that when it turns out I didn't win. Well, you know what? I, I, I like to play the odds, and I think, well, we had the New one Berlin. One in million. Yeah, and we had the, the gentleman win the big one in New Berlin, what, four years ago or something along those, those lines. I just... Lightning usually doesn't strike twice, and, and I feel like the Southeast Wisconsin gas station winning happened once on one of these huge ones again. What are the chances that it's going to happen again? I just feel like it doesn't work that way, so... You're yeah. actually overthinking. You're thinking. <laughs> I just keep going back to one in three hundred and two million. But that's again. But you're paying for the dream. So, Mike, one of our listeners makes a very good point on this, and he says, "I got into the office pool at my place for twenty dollars. Um, it's because." If if in that office pool, if somebody happens to get lucky, I don't want to be the only one left at work. And, and there is there is that kind of element, you know, when, when you think about it, it's like I'm the guy that sat out the office pool and everybody else hit it. And now they've all retired and stuff. Yeah, if you could maybe guilt me in that way. If we have an office pool, then then I would be more inclined to jump in. Well, it, see, I, I have a I have a friend from another life, very, very successful lawyer. And the the worst the worst investors in some respects are doctors and lawyers. And my, my buddy, very, very successful lawyer, made a lot of money. He's retired now, made a lot of money in his career. But he he would always call me up and he would ask me if I wanted to get in on these kind of like high-flying investments because he had a couple buddies who were doctors and who were lawyers who would find these like I, again, the, these these startup things mm-hmm. that we're looking for this and hey Jeff, do you want to put ten thousand dollars in this or whatever? Because th- this could be worth millions. And I would always listen to this and I'd say no, <laughs> this, this is this this is this is it's it's not it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's not going to work out. And and I, I swear. Over the course of, of a couple decades, he probably invested in seven or eight or nine of these things. You know, and again, he could afford that, but it was like the, these these high flying things that never went anywhere. And I always passed on that. And I remember saying to him at one point in time, "Why are you 
why are you doing this? You know, I mean, I understand you've, it's not like a question of you're going to get thrown out of your house or not, but that's still, you, you work sure. hard for this money. And what, what he said was exactly that. He had a couple friends who were getting in on this, and even though intellectually he knew that this was not going to work out, the possibility that one of his buddies would invest, hey, I invested in Microsoft mm-hmm. at the ground floor, and my $10,000 is now worth $50 million, and the, my, my buddies got in on that, and they made that. I just couldn't have that happen, so I put the money in. Yeah, I think the, the, the power of persuasion is... And peer pressure. It, yes, is very enticing. Because, yeah, you wouldn't want to be the only one. And and, and I, I say greed might not be the right word, but it's kind of like, oh, okay, all my buddies here that we went to college with or we went to law school with or we went to med school together, and, and doctors are the worst because they've got, sometimes they've got more money than sense. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I, I don't... I don't want to have to work at the hospital for the next 25 years, and darn it, you know, Al just hit it big, and I passed on this thing. FOMO's a real thing. It's a real thing. The fear of missing out is is uh, it's powerful. I, I could again, I could see that. I wouldn't want to be the only one. I love this place, but showing up here, and there's <laughs> there's just a swiveling chair, you know, spinning around in the programming office, and you're like, what the heck happened? There's, oh, yeah. there, there's everybody else is gone, and it's mm-hmm. you, and it's me, and my producer Charlie, and and we're just all kind of sitting around going, what happened to everybody yeah. else? Oh, they're celebrating because they they put that two dollars into the office pool. All right, something to think about when we come back. As long as we're talking about spending money, I'm curious how you feel about this story. Stick around. I'll explain. We'll discuss. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I never... I never tell people how to spend their their own money. Sometimes I might suggest that, well, if you're taking money that's been given to you by somebody else, like government money, and spending it in certain fashions, that could be irresponsible. But again, I think people make their, their own decisions. Which brings me to this Bruce Springsteen story. Bruce Springsteen, big, big act. I think I've seen Springsteen over the decades, you know, two or three times. He's coming to Pfizer Forum March 7th. And they've just announced tickets. Uh, tickets have gone on sale for his first U.S. tour since 2016-2017. Now, when he did that tour, 2016-2017, the um, prices that he charged for tickets were um, somewhere between um, 68 to 150 bucks. So th- they did everything they could to try to, I mean, keep ticket prices moderate. Well, that has changed. The story in the Journal Sentinel says, you know, right now, 150 bucks if you want to buy a ticket, if you can find one. There's some single seats that were still available as of like yesterday that are, are behind the stage. So you've got a rear view. Seats in the first row behind the floor pit, they're going for up to $2,500 a piece plus plus prices. Um, the price for some floor seats was more than 4000 bucks as a result of Ticketmaster's what they call dynamic pricing system, which adjusts the price in real time due to demand. And, and this is going on all around the country. Now, Bruce Springsteen is supposedly the working man's hero and stuff, and fans are saying, hey, Bruce, you know, how, how much is, how much is, is enough? 
and he's saying, well, we, we understand that if, you know, you, you get caught in this dynamic pricing thing, it, it can get kind of ugly. But, you know, mo- most of our tickets are, are sold at like around $200. That, that's going to be like kind of the average average ticket price is, is $200. His spokesman essentially comes out and says, well, you know, it, it's true that, you know, that some of these tickets cost a lot, but um, we believe that it's a fair price to see someone universally regarded as among the very greatest artists of his generation. In other words, yes, we know that we're we're charging you an enormous amount of money, but we're doing it because we think we can get it. And they're right, because people are grabbing up these tickets at what I would say is, I mean, I, th- I think it's kind of stupid money. If, if you, I mean, $2,500 a piece for, you know, a floor seat right behind the pit, the people are doing that. $150 to sit like behind the stage with like a rear view. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Right, here's my question. Do you fault Springsteen or any other performer for charging what I think most of us would agree are exorbitant rates for tickets? given the fact that nobody is holding a gun to anybody's head and saying, you've got to buy the tickets. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I've seen Springsteen a couple times. I, I just, I, I don't really have an overriding desire to see him again. Maybe if somebody offered to take me, I, I, I'd go. I, I like the band. I like the music. Would I spend two grand to see Bruce Springsteen? Absolutely not. Would I spend $1,500 a piece? Absolutely not. Would I spend $1,000 a piece? Absolutely not. Would I spend $500? Absolutely not. But is it Springsteen's problem that people out there are willing to pay this? And should he be criticized, given the fact that he is apparently an in-demand enough performer to garner these enormous ticket prices? Do you fault him for charging these enormous rates. And he's not the only one that does it. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Golf's next major happens at the club at Lock LaBelle and Oconomowoc. Want to play a round of golf with your favorite WTMJ personalities and partners? This is your chance to win a foursome at the WTMJ Classic on August 22nd. Tune into Wisconsin's Morning News and Wisconsin's Afternoon News all week and listen for the cue to call. If you can correctly answer a golf trivia question, you will qualify for a chance to hit the links with us. It's the WTMJ Classic, Monday, August 22nd at the club at Lock LaBelle in Oconomowoc. 855-616-1620, which is the accurate mortgage talk and text line all right so bruce springsteen announces his first u.s concert tour with the east street band in the last five years it is of course incredibly popular um the ticket prices at least right now if you can find a ticket to the milwaukee concert they're coming here in march the 150 bucks for like behind the stage about as bad a ticket as you can imagine up to I don't know, somewhere between $2,500 and $4,000 if you want to be like on the floor up close. I, I think that's that's crazy money. A lot of people, though, are criticizing Springsteen. Is it fair to criticize Springsteen? He's obviously cashing in. Not like he needs the money, but if people are willing to pay that, do you fault him for charging that? Let's talk to Adam. Adam, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, hi, Jeff. Hi, Adam. Um, no, I don't fault him one one bit. Uh, uh, if the economy uh, or the market uh, uh, bears that, go ahead. Especially because it's it's not a matter of life and death. It's not like a life saving drug that he's marking up. 
Nobody's forcing anybody to go to that concert. So I, I don't fault him for uh, for charging what the what the market bears. What I do fault him for is his hypocritical uh, leftist views, where he attacks other industries for um, charging what the market bears, acting like he's this uh, you know this champion of of the little guy. Yeah, that 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 I think. It, yeah, no, no, thanks, yeah. For, no, thanks for calling. That, and see, I think that that is a fair commentary on this I, I am a free market guy and the reason bruce springsteen charges these enormous amounts of money to go to his concerts is because he knows that his fans will pay that so I, yeah i mean he could charge a hundred dollars a piece he could still make a ton of money if you were charging a hundred bucks or 70 bucks but you know why charge 70 bucks or a hundred bucks if you can get you know, two hundred and fifty dollars, or five hundred, or a thousand, or two, or three, or four thousand. Because if they're paying you that money, four thousand dollars for a ticket is better than two hundred dollars for a ticket. And, and that's it's a free market sort of thing. I don't fault people for doing that. I do think, though, Adam, you make an excellent point that there is this degree of hypocrisy where you know you've spent your career talking about you know the the the, the evils of capitalism and, and things like that and how I'm going to stand up for the working man and then you turn around and you charge people you know those kind of rates for your concert. Nothing wrong with doing it, but let's just understand that you're. You're, you're a hypocrite in the extreme. Um, Jeff, I don't fault him. However, I would never pay those prices for him or anyone else for that matter, and that's my choice. What's the old saying? Don't hate the player, hate the game. Um, yes, so that's out there. Jeff, if no one goes to Bruce Springsteen concerts, or maybe just a few people go, with prices the way they are and everything these days, I would never pay $2,500 plus for a ticket. I think that that's just outrageous. But obviously there are people that are out there that are doing that. Jeff, um, I'm from the school of thought that just because you can, you shouldn't. I feel like each artist has a monopoly in theory. There's no other Bruce Springsteen, so he can charge what he wants. I just wish the artists would go a little bit easy on their fans. Jeff, I think it's pretty simple. You don't want to pay the money, then don't go. They'd rather have an empty seat than lower the price. If they'd rather have an empty price, then lower the seat, uh, prices, and so be it. Well, no, that's not the choice because Springsteen is so popular that it doesn't matter what they charge. They will get that, and the place will be full. Now, obviously, not Every artist, not most artists, are going to uh, be able to do that. Jeff, I think he'll lose some avid fans by charging a premium. I don't know. Um, Jeff, for me, I'm going to watch his live performance for free on YouTube the day after. Well, that's always a, a response. I mean, I'm if you're a regular listener, you know I'm a huge fan of, of Jimmy Buffett. And they put all their concerts up on 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 it's on youtube tv or radio margaritaville or margaritaville tv you can watch it on the internet you can watch it live and you can do it for free doesn't hurt you know their concert sales but but again i you know i mean i've seen buffett countless times i don't even want to admit how many times i'm going to see him again in october in las vegas but there is a certain point where you told me well jeff you know you for you know up close it's going to cost you 2500 bucks and even if i had the 2500 bucks I wouldn't spend it on that. Jeff, I would only pay $2,500 a ticket for Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison. 
in which case you're not going to have to pay $2,500, um, you know, with that. Um, Jeff, Elton John did the same thing back in April, same within Las Vegas shows. They're always way more. Um, I'm seeing Silk Sonic there next month. A balcony seat was 250 bucks. I just saw the weekend in Chicago on Sunday in a nosebleed seat. It was 129 face value. Um, I'll be at Allegiant Stadium the same weekend. I'm in Vegas, and the nosebleed seat is $249. Yeah, I mean, and again, I don't fault the artists. They, if, if you can get it, that, that's fine. Do it. I, I will say this. One of the things that I, I've decided to do, and, and it's just, again, it's a personal preference, for a lot of the acts that I grew up with that I've seen countless times, what what, what I've, I've kind of decided to do is rather than say, and I, I, I'll use Willie Nelson example. I love Willie Nelson. Okay, I love Willie Nelson. I've seen Willie Nelson probably 10, 15. He's an American treasure. I, I appreciate it. Um, but I, I've seen him 10 or 15 times. So if, if Willie Nelson is performing, I, I'm I'm not going to spend 115 or $129 to, to go see Willie Nelson again at the age of 86. I'd rather take that money, and I'd rather maybe see some new upcoming performers. That's one of the things I think is so cool about Summerfest, that you get the opportunity to end up doing that. Now, I'm not telling people, if you want to go see Willie Nelson for the 15th or the 20th time, and you're willing to spend that money, or Bob Dylan, or you know any of the, these other acts where the performers are in their upper 70s or 80s that you've seen countless times, that, that that's fine. I mean, that that's how you choose to spend your money. One of the things that I've, again, started doing is trying to say, well, I'm still going to go to shows, but maybe I'll, I'll try to, instead of seeing a guy who's, or a gal or a band or whatever that's been around for 50 years that I've seen many, many times, especially in their heyday, that I inevitably then end up comparing, you know, how they are now to, well, the last time I, I went to the Rod Stewart uh, concert at Summerfest, and I, I, I didn't buy the tickets. I was a, I was a guest. But, you know, and, and Rod Stewart, he's, what, 77 years old, and, and I thought it was an entertaining show. I enjoyed myself. But, you know, Rod Stewart at 77 was not Rod Stewart at, at 27. And I I'm, and I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I went. I was invited, like I say. I, so I was kind of as a guest of somebody. But it was like, okay, if I had to spend my own money on that, I enjoyed the concert, enjoyed the show. But if it was my own money, maybe I'd be thinking I want to spend it on, I don't know, seeing some performers or some of the newer performers or whatever. But But that's... That that's just me. If you want to buy the Springsteen tickets, I mean, buy the Springsteen tickets. I understand it costs a lot of money to take you know people on the road and stuff. But at some point in time, I don't know. Do you, do you need to make two million dollars a show? If you can make it, there's nothing wrong with it. Just like there's nothing wrong with buying those lottery tickets. All right. When we come back, I want to ask you what is really the operative question. We've got an election coming up in 11 days, and I want to ask you which way you are leaning in one particular race. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. We've been telling you about this all week. Jim Ursay, who's the owner and the CEO of the NFL's Indianapolis Colts, is bringing items from the Jim Ursay Collection, a renowned assemblage of iconic artifacts and rock music, American history, and pop culture to Chicago 
August 2nd, that would be next Tuesday, at Aon Grand Ballroom on the Navy Pier, which is a very cool place. And that's going to also include a performance by the Jim Ursay Band and Wilson from Hearts supposed to be there. I have today not one pair of tickets. I have two pairs of tickets to give away, and we are going to give them to callers number 9 and 10. Callers 9 and 10 at 855-616-1620. Win, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Win a pair of tickets to see the Jim Ursay experience and the show and all that. It is next Tuesday. So callers 9 and 10, 855-616-1620. Win a pair of tickets. It sounds like it's going to be an absolutely tremendous experience. Hey, I have a clarification, and it's um, it's not my fault. But I felt bad nonetheless. A couple days ago, there were all these announcements. The New York Times published this obituary. It was all over the wire services that that Tony Dow, who was best known as he played Wally Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver. And we talked about Leave it to Beaver, some of these old shows that they had announced that he had passed away. And that's because the family had announced that he had passed away. Um, As it turns out. He had not passed away. He was in the later stages of life and in hospice care and things like that, but he wasn't dead. And that, that all these reports that were out there, and, and now, unfortunately, there was not a miraculous recovery, and now he, he has, in fact, died. But it's um, it, it was one of those things, like I'm saying, okay, how how can you make this this mistake? But apparently it was the family and the personal representatives who were you know, going through grief and stuff, and maybe they just miscommunicated things because clearly he was in a hospice and wasn't doing well the last stages of cancer, and cancer certainly sucks. There's, there's no question about that. But um, Tony Dow, th- these reports that he had passed away were, were premature by a day or two, but now it has, in fact, been confirmed. And it was one of those deals. I, I've, I've always, I find this interesting because... He was very accomplished in the arts. He, he, he went on. He was a producer. He was a director. He worked in the entertainment industry behind the scenes for his entire life and, and actually achieved a level of success. But for his entire life, he was going to be known as, as Wally Cleaver, you know, from, from Beaver Cleaver, the Leave it to Beaver show that ran from 1967 to 1973, 1957 to 1963. And you just, you kind of wonder what it's like to go through life just being so permanently identified because you're 40 years old, you're 50 years old, doesn't matter what else you've accomplished in your life, but you're always going to be somebody yelling, hey, Wally, at you or something like that. But I guess on the other hand, maybe it's better to be that identified than it is to, I don't know, have, have nobody know who you are if you're an actor, never to have been in a successful uh, situation. Some Actors just fight it and resent it. Others um, just just embrace it. One of the, the great stories about someone who embraced it is if you remember the old television show Gilligan's Island and there was the, the character played by Alan Hale Jr. who played the skipper. He it was three years. And, and after that, he was forever identified as the skipper. And some performers might kind of resent that. Oh, I just don't want to be thought of like that. He completely and totally embraced it. You know, he went out in public. He'd always wear that skipper hat and things like that. He just, he recognized that he'd been given this gift of this incredible notoriety, you know, for this this television show for three years. And he didn't think twice about doing supermarket openings and, you know, all this other stuff because it was a way to make a, a good living. And people loved the character and they loved him. And he just completely and totally embraced it. And 
in a way that you'd, you'd like to see people be able to do. He was very, very comfortable in his own skin. But the bottom line is uh, Tony Dow, who portrayed Wally on Beaver to Cleaver, leave it to Beaver. He um, now officially it's been confirmed he did pass away at the age of 77. All right. We have our winners of our Jim Mercer Experience tickets. When we come back, what are you thinking? I will explain. We will discuss. At one point in time, it looked like there were going to be two very closely contested major races on the primary ballot coming up in Wisconsin. In the primary, for people who might not have been paying attention, the partisan primary is going to be conducted on um, a week from Tuesday, Tuesday, August 9th. The way it works in Wisconsin, I know we've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating, is in in Wisconsin, you do not have to declare a party preference. You can vote in either primary, but you cannot vote in, in both. So you couldn't, for example, vote in the Democratic primary for U.S. senator and then flip over and vote in the Republican primary for, for governor. You have to, if you're going to vote in the Democratic primaries, you got to vote in the Democratic primaries. And if you're going to vote in the Republican primaries, you have to vote in the Republican primaries. There's always the potential for, like, some crossover voting and things like that. You know, Democrats who decide, well, I don't care what's on the Democratic primary ballot. I'm going to vote for Republicans and try to mess around or, or vice versa. Originally, the thought was there was going to be two heavily contested primaries, the Democratic Senate primary and the Republican gubernatorial primary. The With the announcement over the last week that two of the four candidates who had been running for the Democratic Senate nomination, that would be Alex Lazary and Tom Nelson, two of those four candidates, they, they've now dropped out. They're, they're their names are still in the ballot, but they've said they're not running. So it effectively leaves the choice down to two, Mandela Barnes and Sarah Godlewski is the state treasurer. And I think most of the conventional wisdom is Mandela Barnes is going to win in a walkover. So a lot of the luster has gone out of what was two weeks ago, a four-way primary. It's now down to a two-way primary. And who knows? But I think, you know, all the smart people – um, and some of the dumb ones say that this is a it, it's it's Mandela Barnes and, and he's going to win in a walkover, taking some of the luster off of that primary. Well, that, that's people withdrawing has not happened on the Republican side of the aisle. Re- people who choose to vote in the Republican primary, it, it's turned out to be a very, very contested race for governor. You have. Former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who spent an hour with me on Monday on on the show, who's effectively she's been running for governor for like the last year and a half. She's been in all the different counties. She's been meeting with all the different groups. She's out there touting her experience. And like I say, she was on the program for an hour on Monday. You've got Tim Michaels, who is um, his family owns and operates the Michaels Construction Company, which is like an infrastructure and pipeline company. Um, he He's not really a political outsider, I would say. I mean, he was the Republican nominee for Senate against Russ Feingold back in 2004. He's been uh, an active contributor to Republican Party candidates over the years. He, he got in late. I mean, he got in a couple months ago. But he's made himself a viable candidate by spending, you know, in the neighborhood of $8 million already 
on his campaign, and he's racked up some impressive endorsements. Tommy Thompson has endorsed him, former President Donald Trump, and I understand this cuts both ways, but Trump has endorsed Michaels. He's coming to um, Waukesha for a, a rally purportedly for Michaels on August 5th. Rebecca Clayfish, for her part, has endorsements from Ted Cruz and um, Mike Pence, former vice president, and Scott Walker, who was the governor when she was lieutenant governor. So, you know, she's got a set of endorsements, plus endorsements by lots and lots of county officials and other um, people like that. There's a third candidate for governor, Tim Rantham, who's kind of running on what I would say is that the, sort of the crazy ticket. His his principal issue is, I, I want to decertify the 2020 election, which I'm sorry that it can't be done. It, it might get applause lines from people who don't understand, but to me, that's just kind of the fringe. And and Rantham's not going to win. He's he's he may be a bit of a spoiler. I don't know if he'll get five percent or three percent or eight percent, but he, he's not going to win. The race is really between Rebecca Clayfish and Tim Michaels. Our number is eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now I'm only here for a couple more days because I leave next Tuesday for our, our listener trip to Alaska. I have actually voted. I mean, my wife and I early voting opened up on Tuesday, and you know, because we're not going to be here until we, we get back the day after the primary, I wanted to make sure I got a chance to vote, and we went in and we we've cast our ballots. I think the numbers suggest that there's already over a hundred plus thousand people in Wisconsin who already have taken advantage of the ability to vote early and have, in fact, done that. My question, though, and I want to take your temperature because I I have people from different campaigns and stuff that are telling me, you know, what, what they're seeing and what internal polls are and things like that. I see this as a very, very competitive race. Um, the, the Michaels, it's not the Michaels campaign, it's, it's, it's groups that I think um, support Tim Michaels. You know, they've they've gone very, very negative in the last couple of days against Rebecca Clayfish, which tells me that they perceive it to be a close race. Donald Trump coming in a week from tomorrow to campaign for Tim Michaels. That tells me that the Michaels campaign believes it's close. I think the Clayfish race campaign would tell you it's the same. I, I think this is... While we all might have ideas as to who's going to win, I think it's it's really probably anybody's race, and it's going to depend a lot on what what happens over the course of the next 10 days. Where do people who are legitimately undecided, if there are people who are undecided out there, how do they break? Which campaign does a better job of getting their voters to the polls and all that? But I want to take your temperature at this point in time. If you have or are planning on voting in the Republican primary for governor, who are you going to vote for and why? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you are genuinely undecided 10, 11 days before the election, what is it that you think is going to move the needle? 855-616-1620. Who are you going to vote for? Who you have voted for? Who have you voted for? And if you haven't voted and aren't decided yet, what are you looking for from the candidates? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Okay, so what are you doing in the Republican gubernatorial primary? Before we get to phone calls, let me just uh, read you some of the texts that are coming in. Jeff, for me, it's Michaels because he's against the uh, Madison establishment. 
Jeff, I was undecided until Trump endorsed Michaels. Now I'm voting for Clayfish. Jeff, I plan on voting for Michaels in the GOP primary. The main reason is that I cannot put my finger on one significant legislative or business accomplishment that Clayfish has uh, has personally achieved. Uh, Jeff, I'm not voting for Michaels. Um, if he wins, how can he work with the establishment? Um, Rantham is a space cadet. I am voting for Rebecca. Jeff, for me, it's Clayfish. Experience matters. She can communicate with state legislature members that she worked with in the past. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, it was a difficult decision as I was in favor of Michaels, and the reason was uh, I, I didn't was because he's endorsed by Trump. Trump was a great president until he went off the rails. Um, I think that uh, among some minded people, uh, the Trump backing could hurt him. That, that's interesting because, you know, that Trump endorsement is going to cut both ways. Jeff, I'm backing Rebecca. I was considering Michaels, but after the GOP debate, I changed my mind. Rebecca seemed knowledgeable on the issues and had a clear plan on what she's going to do. Michaels just acts the tough guy but wasn't familiar with the issues. I'm just kind of reading what's going on here. Jeff, my vote is for Michaels, hard worker, patriot, strong leadership. I think he will take Wisconsin forward. Jeff, I consider myself a moderate Republican. I will not vote for anyone who is advertising that Trump is endorsing them. Uh, Roberta says, I'm voting for Rebecca Clayfish. She's the most informed, and she worked with Scott Walker, who I absolutely loved. Jeff, I was 50-50 on the fence. Tommy's endorsement for Michaels pushed me to vote for him. Jeff, Rebecca all the way. Michaels, I think, is just using the state uh, taxpayers here to make him more money. And again, I'm just... I'm not commenting on this. I'm sharing uh, these things with you. Jeff, Clayfish, easy choice for me. I think Michael's trying to buy himself a governorship, and that doesn't seem right. Also, um, after the last two debates, he doesn't seem informed to me or ready for prime time. 855-616-1620. All right, let's start with Jerry in Watoma. Jerry, you're in WTMJ. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry Walkershaw. Walkershaw. Yeah. Yes, Jeff. It was... Simple once Michael entered the race, Tim Michaels, I'm retired military. He's military, and he served with the old guard, this guard's a tomb unknown soldier. I mean, that's not an easy task to get into. got to be, you, you, they don't take right. bottom-of-the-barrel people. Yeah, and, and, and that he's not a career politician. His family has business background. Well, uh, I would have voted Clayfish had he not entered the race. But uh, Michael's is my choice, Tim. Okay, uh, good Tim. enough. Absolutely. Thanks to call. Military service. I've got it. Uh, Tom in Milwaukee. Tom, you're on. Tim in Milwaukee. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, I'm not really crazy about either candidate. I think Rebecca uh, Clayfish is a little bit too establishment. Um, and I really wish that Tim Michaels was a little bit more polished um, in his ads, uh, in his debate strategies, things uh, of that nature. But to bite the bullet and, and try to move the state forward. I think Tim Michaels is the only chance. Good enough. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 855-616-1620. David in Fond du Lac. David, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Who are you going to vote for and why? Good. I'm voting for Rebecca. Um, actually, in Fond du Lac, um, it's, it's interesting because we're close to Brownsville, close to the Michaels family. But um, I just see that... Um, I think Rebecca gives us the best chance to beat Tony Evers. I think uh, um, we saw in the presidential election where um, the 
the suburban women made a huge difference, and um, I really think we need her support for Rebecca to, to make sure Evers is not our governor. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. You think that Clayfish is more electable than Michael. So, um, obviously, I think electability, that's a concern. And, and I will tell you this. I think from a policy matter, there's not really too much that differentiates these two. I mean, I, I just that 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 is my that is my sense. Unlike, say, in the U.S. the general election for U.S. Senate, where you're gonna have Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes, and and you're talking about people from just sort of opposite extremes. That, that this is it. I mean, on a policy matter. I, I just it's difficult for me to find. I'm not sure I found an issue that I think that Michaels and Clayfish disagree with. Uh, on, so, I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about style and things like that. But from a policy matter, I, th- there seem to me to be very similar. So then you do start to think about things like electability. Jeremy and Racine. Jeremy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm right now I'm with Michaels. Uh, given the fact Rebecca's got a lot of um, policies that she had uh, when she was with the Walker administration that's really unpopular, especially with the Act 10. That's going to make her uh, be in the trenches for that, as well as the Foxconn deal. Right now, Foxconn has been really nothing but a kind of like a stain in the Racine area here. Um, And I think it's going to really it's going to bog her down quite a bit. They're going to they're going to really hit on that a lot. And you're not really going to get a lot of policy substance moving mm-hmm. forward because of those types of things. And I think that's why Michaels might be a better fit right now. You think he's more electable? Yeah, I really do. I think he's more electable. He's got less baggage being in, in, in uh, Madison and, and what have you and, and Wisconsin politics. So, yeah, he got the little thing with the gas tax and everything like that. But I think uh, I think he has a better chance. Thanks to call, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Here's one of our texts. I'm going to write in Jeff Wagner. No, don't write in Jeff Wagner. <laughs> no, because, again, I think, you know, this is, like I say, I, I've already voted, so I've, I've made my decision. But, I mean, what you want to do is you're thinking about voting in this primary You know, I I sit down and and figure it out. Vote for one of the candidates that that can that's going to win and and make, you know, make that best choice. And maybe you decide to go with Clayfish. Maybe you decide to go with Michaels, whatever those decisions are, that that's fine. But, um, you know, I think this is this is a chance where you have a legitimately close race and you have a chance to express your opinion. Can't go wrong with bumper music from Bob Seeger. 855-616-1620. Okay, my, my question was, in the Republican primary, which way are you leaning? Number of texts coming in here. Somebody says, well, you know, vote. you're saying vote for whom you think you can win. What about the issues? Well, my point was, as I said before, I don't think that there's any material difference between the major candidates on the issues. Jeff, both candidates are strong conservatives, but even though I voted for Trump, I believe it's time to move forward. I believe Trump's endorsement for Michaels will turn off many moderate and independent voters. I'm a lifelong Republican, and it turns me off. That will be interesting. Like I say, President Trump, former President Trump, coming here for for a rally, it it cuts both ways. Here's Lynn and Adele. Because Michaels is backed by Trump, he has less of a chance to win against Evers with independent voters. The mere hint of Trump turns off independent 
voters. Jeff, how about they talk more about how they will do better than Tony Evers? That's one of the reasons, like when, when Rebecca Clayfish was here on Monday and she started criticizing Tony Evers about, for example, his response to the riots in Kenosha. And one of my follow-up questions was, what would you have done differently? And she answered it, but I, I think that that's kind of a, a fair question. Jeff, I think if Clayfish wins, she could beat Evers. If Michaels wins, I believe he cannot beat Evers. Um, let's see. Um, Jeff, um, the way I look at it, Rebecca already lost to Evers Barnes once. What makes her think she can beat him again? Well, um, I guess the, the argument would be that Rebecca Clayfish wasn't on the on the ballot, and she was the lieutenant governor. It wasn't a head-to-head matchup against Tony Evers. And as, as I have said repeatedly in trying to analyze that, that 2018 race, I, I think you, you have to be careful reading too much into it. 2018 was a year where there was a lot of discontent with Donald Trump. And what happened is the people that hated Trump, even in 2018, hated Trump. You had massive turnout in Dane County and Milwaukee County to a somewhat lesser extent. And and they couldn't vote against Donald Trump, but they voted against anybody with an R after his name. And that happened to be Scott Walker and Rebecca Clayfish in this case. I, I think it was dissatisfaction with Trump coupled with, and I credit where credit is due, um, Democrats in, in in some heavily Democratic areas, put on a series of non-binding referendums asking about legalized marijuana. And so you got a bunch of the the people, I was going to say potheads, but people get offended by that. But, you know, the people who support legalizing marijuana that turned out, and I think they figured they're much more likely to vote for Tony Evers than they were for Scott Walker. And I think, you know, those those referendums, you know, had some Valid, had were partly responsible, which is why you've got a couple of very liberal county supervisors who want to put the same referendums back on the Milwaukee County ballot again, um, even though they asked the same question a couple of years ago for no other purpose other than trying to juice the the vote against um, this case against a Republican candidate. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, um, I think Michaels is a carpetbagger. I think that's a bit strong. Um I think that's a bit strong, but that's it. Jeff, it's Clayfish because she knows what's going on. Um, Jeff, I'm going to be supporting Rebecca. Uh, Jeff, I would vote for Michaels. Clayfish kicked the can down the road on the outdated unemployment computers. Jeff, it's Becky for me. Um, Michaels, I believe, is done because of Trump. Jeff, I was planning to vote for Michaels, but switched to Rebecca once I heard her say that she wants to remove retirement taxes. Um, Jeff, I'm a Democrat. I won't vote in the Senate primary, but I will vote for Michaels because Rebecca is a union hater. I have had enough of that. And he's obviously referring to, you know, Act 10, which is the the signature accomplishment, uh, I think, of the Walker Clayfish era. Jeff, um, Rebecca Clayfish for me, I think she's the most qualified. Um, She was also backed by Scott Walker, not Trump. Um, Jeff, I'm not voting for Michaels. If he wins, how can he work with the establishment? So you get the idea. And I think this is a representative. Uh, Jeff, to me, Trump is a liability. Um, yeah. Um, Jeff, I've received two mailings from Tim Michaels in the past week and a half regarding the NRA. I could care less about expanding the Second Amendment and am baffled why Michaels thinks the Second Amendment is a game changer in his 
campaign. So, you know, there, there you have it. I, I wasn't keeping an informal count of the ones that I've shared with you and the calls that we got. But I, I think it is fair to say that it is a – I think the race is going to be extremely close. It's why turnout is going to be important. It's why the ability of the various campaigns – to get their their voters to the polls is going to be so significant. And I, again, I, I will be surprised if this is a runaway one way or the other. I think it's going to be close. And candidly, I, I think and I do believe that competitive primaries are, are good. I think it's it's good to, you know, have the candidates tested, understanding, just like with Mandela Barnes, once Mandela Barnes wins the Democratic nomination, um, he, he's, he should expect that there's going to be a rough campaign ahead of him because he's got lots of baggage and he's, in my opinion, way out there on issues. You know that whether it's, whether it's Tim Michaels or whether it's Rebecca Clayfish, once once they ultimately emerge from the primary, you know the Tony Evers and the Democrats are, and their allies are going to throw everything they possibly can at them. So might as well get some of this stuff out now so at least voters know where it is. In any event, whether you support Tim Michaels or whether you support Rebecca Clayfish, if you're planning to vote in the Republican primary, do it. Early voting remains open through a, pretty much the end of next week. And then, of course, the primary is on August 9th. Only a few minutes left. But, you know, one of the things that, that I frequently comment on this program is there are there are products, there are places that you, you think are going to be around forever and they're suddenly then they're suddenly they're they're not. Chaco Tacos. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Chaco Tacos. My producer Charlie is shaking his head. You've never even heard of Chaco Tacos. No? Not even heard of them. The name sounds familiar, okay. but... All right. Okay. Well, here, here's the deal. Chaco Tacos... You need to get out more. Chaco Tacos were invented about 40 years ago, and they were invented by a guy who, who actually was a driver of a Good Humor truck. Good Humor, um, they're ice cream trucks. And they're, they're really big on the East Coast, you know, but it's like Good Humor brand ice cream, and they drive them around, and you know, the kids come up and buy stuff. And, and what he noticed was when you'd buy, like, the ice cream cones and stuff, and, and even the ones that, you are know, like, were prepackaged, it would be you had the ice cream cone, then you had the ice cream, and then maybe you had the chocolate and the nuts on top, but you couldn't eat them all together. So they came up with what they called Choco Tacos. And essentially, it's like, uh, imagine an ice cream cone, except it's in the shape of a taco. And then what they would do is they would put the ice cream and they would put the chocolate and they would put the nuts, they'd put it inside the, what, what I'm calling the, the taco shell. But it's really, it's kind of like the ice cream cone sort of thing. So instead of eating the ice cream and the chocolate and the peanuts and then getting down to the cone, what you would do is you would eat them, you'd, you'd eat it like a taco and you would eat it all at once. So every bite that you have would have, <laughs> again, would, would have the, the cone and it would have the ice cream and it would have all this other stuff. They were incredibly popular. I, I bring this up because it was announced earlier this week that Unilever, which is the parent company of Klondike, and Klondike, you know, makes the Klondike bars and Klondike cones and things like that, um, Unilever has made the decision that they're going to drop the Choco Tacos. And I, I think the, the idea is 
that they just, you know, they kind of went through their, you know, they had to cut back. And apparently, like the Choco Tacos wasn't wasn't one of the biggest sellers. So despite the fact that the stuff is beloved, they're, they're going to move on from it. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, a lot of people very, very unhappy about this decision. Now, we've seen, you know, other products that have been dropped because they just weren't selling enough and all, products that you thought would be around forever. Are you a fan of this particular thing, and are are you surprised that they're not going to be able to sell it anymore? 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. For me, I... This was never one of my favorite things, although I know what I know what they are and I understand the concept behind them. But I think, you know, one of the things that you're starting to see now is a lot of these businesses are having to make, you know, especially you, you can't find people to, to make things. You can't find workers. You, you know, have trouble getting underlying ingredients and things like that. And I think one of the things that ends up happening is you've got a lot of people who are a lot of companies who just simply say, okay, we, we've got to kind of look at the bottom line here, and we understand that some stuff is extremely popular, but we've got to make the decision to, you know, go with the, the stuff that's more popular than others. It's kind of like during the the height of the pandemic, if you will remember, there was a shortage, and we talked about this on the program, that they temporarily, post-temporarily suspended making grape nuts, the, the breakfast cereal, and it, which are neither grapes nor, nor nuts, but yet they <laughs> suspended making that, and it created, you know, a huge problem. Jeff, to me, this is like the Twinkie fiasco all over again. Well, you know, you've seen like Hostess that has cut back on some of these brands. Jeff, I always like them. I will miss it. I had one for old time's sake yesterday. Well, you're right. I think that that's what you're starting to see, that given the fact that they have announced that they're, they're going away, what you're going to see is a lot of the people that were huge fans of these things are going to be rushing out and they're going to be buying them quickly. Jeff, my son sent me this earlier this week, and it's, again, one of the things that CNN is putting out, talking about you know, rest in peace, Choco Taco. Jeff, this is truly a sad time in our family. We are Choco Taco fans. Our neighbor is a Unilever distributor, and every summer we get a case of Choco Tacos. I just called him for another box, and he says he is completely and totally sold out. Jeff, if people don't like it, they should go and start up their own ice cream truck business, be a competitor. I bet they won't let anybody else tell them what to sell. It's interesting because in the story I'm looking at, you have a a couple um, wealthy private investors. By wealthy, I mean people who have made, you know, had great success in other areas who are apparently reaching out to Unilever saying, okay, if you don't want to make them, you know, we'll buy the rights to Choco Taco and keep them from melting away. Now, that's maybe easier said than done. Jeff, the ice cream truck went by our house earlier this week, and I chose a Choco Taco. There are plenty of other options, but I am surprised that they are getting rid of them. Well, obviously, they must not be selling enough to to make this whole thing work. Jeff, not necessarily my favorite, but I'm surprised they're getting rid of them. Again, this underscores one of the things I, I always tell you. If you think 
that something is an institution. You think that there's, well, th- this this has been there. for they're, they're making Choco Tacos for, for 40 years. You know, they've been making grape nuts, you know, for 40 years or, or whatever. Of course, they're always going to make them. Not necessarily. People's tastes always change. And in this case, especially when you're a company that, like I say, is probably dealing with productions issues, you're dealing with supply stuff, you, you have to kind of say, okay, let's, let's look at what we're making. Let's see where the money is. Let's see what people are buying. And yes, it's popular and we've got loyal fans, but there's not enough of them to justify it. In any event, the word is rest in peace, Choco Tacos. A Unilever is apparently prepared for the backlash. They know that they're getting all sorts of abuse from this, but they, they say this is this is what they're doing. So bottom line is if you if you're in a position where you've got some of them, well, you might want to hold on to them because you never know how much you'll be able to sell them for on eBay at some point in time.